Greetings and welcome to Shattered Lives, an informed, conversational, cutting-edge radio show in touch with today's issues that impact the lives of crime victims, addressing the aftermath of crime, forging a path for hope, building awareness, and empowering listeners for the future. This is Donna Argor, a.k.a. Lady Justice, your host, with my co-host Delilah Jones, president of ImaginePublicity.com, welcome. Welcoming you to today's show and to our library of weekly archive shows. It is our goal to make a difference. So uh, good morning, good afternoon, good evening uh, to my uh, nationwide audience. Whenever you happen to be listening to this, we welcome you to another edition to Shattered Lives. And uh, as always, we have an interesting and unique topic and um, a brand new guest. I'm, I'm very happy to um, welcome in a, uh, a licensed um, mar- um, marriage uh, counselor. Uh, and uh, before I do, uh, or marriage and family counselor, uh, excuse me, therapist, uh, let's welcome in uh, the uh, social media maven of Myrtle Beach, uh, Delilah Jones. Good morning to you, and how are you? I'm great. What a title. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> maven. I wonder what a maven really is. I'm going to have to look that one up after the show. I, I oh. think so. Well, thank you for doing well, such you a know, great job. Since we're, we're, we're broadcasting this show in May, um, and what a what a perfect time to have this guest, and, because being a, a mental health professional this is mental health awareness month and i'm sure that you know that that our guest and many others out there are uniting to end the stigma of mental health and people just you know there's just so much stigma against it and so much misinformation out there that people sometimes don't want to admit the fact that they need help. They don't know where to go to get help. They don't know what kind of help is best for them. So um, yeah. I'm, I'm sure that our guests can enlighten us on all of these things. And hopefully we will go away with more information and good information to um, to celebrate this Mental Health Awareness Month. Absolutely. I think maybe, Delilah, too, that a lot of people may be confused about what does qualify as a mental health problem because I think people are so used to with uh, television and extremist point of views in terms of, well, unless you are schizophrenic, that that, that means you you don't have a mental health problem. But there are many other other, uh, issues that qualify. So, Aaron Aaron Doolittle is our is our esteemed guest today, and I I have to say that um, I was so glad to um, meet her. And the way I met her was through a book signing at, at the uh, Manchester Buckland Hills Mall um, several months ago, and she was very enthusiastic about learning about homicide and and other things and. She was very welcoming with regard to the information, and she was one of my most frequent supporters on all of my social media, and um, has been a has been a well trained uh, therapist for over 21 years, um, doing a plethora of things. But I will let her um, give a little thumbnail sketch of that. So, 
Um, Aaron, without further ado, Delilah and I would love to welcome you to the Shattered Lives Radio family. Thank you so much for taking time with us today. Oh, hi. Well, thanks so much for having me. This is such a, a great thing, and I absolutely love what you're doing. I think it's so important, so I'm just really grateful that I can be a part of it. Well, so are we, because we have not had this this topic before, and I think marriage and family are part and parcel of um who we are, we uh, ascribe our identity, a lot of, a lot of us through marriage and family, um, and if, if something goes wrong within those institutions, it just makes us broken. And I think with, what Delilah began with was, um, you know, the stigma. And so I think what we're saying off air, your, your whole profession or your, your, your mission in life is it not to help use the stigma and to help people um, heal and feel better and find other healthy paths in life. Is that true? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I do. I think learning how to talk about what's going on in your life is something that everyone should take time out of their life to do. And if they are fortunate enough to do it with a therapist, that's great because there is still a stigma, although I do like to think it's lessening. I do think that we are making some strides with uh, just kind of the public awareness of things like anxiety and depression and grief and loss. And, um, you know, I do, I I really want to uh, help just diminish the stigma because there's really, there's no need for it. You know, there's nothing, nothing bad about asking for help. Right. Maybe, maybe people just feel, feel powerless. They don't have the resources um, the resources and know, knowing to where to go, who to go to appropriately or or financially. And so maybe we can dispel some of those myths today. But before we oh, yeah. we get into the material in earnest, can you um, give us a little thumbnail sketch about your background and where you're located? Because we do have people from our constitution state that I know are listening or going to be listening. Oh, definitely. Yes, uh I um you know I'm I'm a local. I grew up in uh, Vernon, Connecticut, just a little town off the side of the highway, and um, I went through all the school system and everything. And it so happened that my mom worked uh, in the director of special education person's office. And uh, the second I graduated high school and I was hireable, um, she definitely said, "Oh, this is happening," and she threw me into an interview with her boss. And the next thing I knew, I was working with medically fragile children at summer camp. And I started doing that every summer, even though I was going to school for music and I was going to work in the in the music industry and I had all these exciting opportunities and, and whatnot. I was always just pulled backwards into helping kids, helping helping adults, helping people. I just couldn't resist that draw. And so I thought, well, I'll become a teacher. So I went to school and I started training uh, for my master's in special ed. And I realized as I, as I was working in the schools that, that uh, the kids were really excited when they're counselors and therapists would come pick them up and and they would talk to them and tell them all about their lives and they would help them so much and I thought well this is crazy all I'm doing is I feel like you know taking away kids recesses and and trying to make them learn math when their home life is absolutely you know in chaos so I switched Mm -hmm. over um, from education into mental health and I did my master's in marriage and family therapy and had always kind of intended to work with the toughest group of kids I could possibly find and that's kind of what I've been doing uh, for the last 10 or 11 years, just slogging away, trying to help people one family at a time. 
And um, so what, I've learned what a lot. Age range are you working with? Or Currently, I would say like family? for everyone, I would say personally, my preference would be kids from the ages of like eight to all the way up to adults in their sixties. Wow, that's quite a range and and quite a challenge, right? Yeah, but it keeps things interesting, and I get all kinds of fresh perspectives. I learn all sorts of great things from my clients. So, uh, I, you know, for me, it, it's fantastic. Well, yeah, it, it, it sounds like a lot of diversity. Um, can you define what the scope of marriage marriage and family um, therapy is these days? What does it encompass so that people have a kind of a groundwork understanding? Sure, yeah. Marriage and family therapists, we're trained a little differently, and um, we're trained to look for systems within systems, and we're, we're trained to look at what is, is going on underneath the surface because there's always a presenting issue. Someone has anxiety, someone has depression, but we want to know what's going on underneath. How is the system feeding into this? How is the system supporting this? And what might need to change? And that requires, you know, an entire shift in a family it sort of takes the onus off the one person who's the most symptomatic and explores everyone's role in the family and um, includes everyone in the family because, you know, if one person in the family is sick, well, the whole family is is going through that illness as well. Um, so we really try to encompass everyone and look at all the systems in their lives, the school system, the work system, the governmental system, the Political system, we, we look at everything and try to make sense out of it and um, support our clients in, in not feeling alone. Mm-hmm. Well, Erin, what, what do you find to be the most prevalent problem that people come to you for? Um, you know, it, whether it be, a, a, you know, just a, a single person or a couple, um, why are they coming to you? And and has that changed over the span of your career? Um, well, it, it's definitely always come as, you know, I, you know, someone is having anxiety. That's probably anxiety and depression are the biggest things because when people start to feel those physical sensations of anxiety and of depression, when their stomachs just turn to mush every time they think about, eating or about going to school or um, when they find that they just, they can barely get out of bed in the morning, you know, they, that's when they call the therapist. Most people, they don't really get ahead of it. It's, it's usually in reaction to something that's happening, which is fine because whatever gets them through the door. And um, the biggest presenting issues I see, uh, you know, since I do work with teenagers and kids is, you know, just bullying and the stress of school and the stress of, um, you know, they really struggle with keeping and maintaining friendships and really creating relationships that are going to support them through school and through work and through whatever it may be because we never really learn how to take care of ourselves very well. And so oftentimes we're left kind of lost and, and wondering. So we need to be able to turn to peers then. And I feel like today kids especially have a really hard time communicating and a really hard time with empathy so I try to teach as much compassion and empathy as I possibly can. Mm-hmm. And there's so much peer pressure, you know, to conform oh to this or that. And, and you know, has, again, I guess everyone, uh, we we always present this question when, when it comes up in, in the appropriate context, has social media numbed us 
and to the point where we're not making the human connections. And so I think kids today, by and large, really don't know how. Oh, I agree. Yeah, social media has really taken the humanity out of the communication. Like It's just they're, they're, they're numb to it. They count on it. They obsess about it. It'll give them horrifying anxiety. Um, it's really become a focal point in their worlds, and I don't think that's really where it belongs. So do you say check your phones at the door? It's not allowed? <laughs> I try to. Whatever? Yeah. I try to, but you'd be shocked how many people are so anxious they can't even concentrate if they cannot see or touch their phones. It, it's amazing to watch that these people are so calm and so together. And then I say, well, let's not look at the phone. And they start to fidget. They don't really know what to do. Oh, my oh, God, now God. I have to make eye contact. And, you know, <laughs> it, it changes thing. them. Yeah. Well, to, to Delilah's former question, over to, and I, you said you've been, quote, unquote, in the field for 21 years. Over time, now, when I think about when my parents got married, the issues must have been very, very different. And um, so over time, even in the scope of when you've been practicing, what, what, has, what has changed other than the obvious, maybe under the surface as a, as a therapist you can tell us? What, what is it that has really evolved that you're dealing with more um, than, than you did maybe at the start of your career? Yeah, I... Um... I would say that the the evolution of the the family system in this day and age has changed considerably. Um, Kids are different now. The way parents have to parent is different now. And with technology, there is a whole generation that is just sort of lost because they never really used it, but now their kids are using it full time. And they're not Mm -hmm. really fully prepared to deal with, you know, basically – safety issues, set parental control, check what your kids are posting, check who they're talking to. Um, You know, that's really become something that needs to be part of their daily life is just being aware that social media is a huge part of your kid's life. And Mm -hmm. if you're giving your sixth grader an iPhone, you really need to stop and think about what you're doing because the iPhone is the entryway to the entire internet. And I, I really feel like kids today are demanding these, these expensive items like iPhones and stuff earlier and earlier. I have a, you know, I have fifth and sixth graders with iPhones and it's like, what, you know, and the parents are just yeah. so upset. Oh, they're addicted to the phone. I can't get them to put the phone down. They won't do their homework. And I'm going, well, cause they're, they're not really ready to have yeah. this device. They created the monster, right? What about the <laughs> whole concept? concept of the you know we used to when I grew up we always sat down around the around the table and had dinner together and you know not that it was you know always you know huge conversations going on every evening but at least we came together for that and there was exchange and um, now with all of these kids going off and doing all these sports activities and mom and dad having to do things after you know your lives are just pulled in every direction so is that part of the equation too? Oh absolutely yes I actually frequently ask and, and even sometimes beg uh, my my patients to have a family dinner. I don't care if it's grilled cheese and tomato soup. 
um, just mm-hmm. sit around that table together every night because studies have shown that kids who grow up in houses where they do dinner every single night, they wait longer to have sex. They feel more supported. They have less anxiety, less depression, are more likely to be successful in school with that one thing that every family could do. Just it giving some structure. Yeah, yeah, and, you know, this, I get that they're on the go and the kids have a million activities and, and stuff, but I, I think that parents need to really stop and think about these activities. If your kid's not getting home until 8 or 9 at night, and they're in elementary or middle school, they're not going to get the sleep that they need. They're going to be a mess all of the time. Um, it's just we've really kind of forgotten how important it is for kids to have downtime, for kids to go to bed at a reasonable hour. Please stop putting your 8-year-old your to bed at 10 at night. You know, this is, this is affecting their brain development. This, are, this is key brain growth years, and if they don't get the sleep, their IQ could suffer. You know, but yeah. I don't know if they just feel pressured to have their kid into everything, but I, you know, I frequently ask my parents, like, can you limit the amount of activities that you're sending your kids to? Right. Uh, absolutely. I, I, I agree. I can't imagine being a parent this day and age. Um, with regard to some of the philosophies you, you, you have in, 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 um, in your treatment, um, you know, I thought it was pretty interesting, and maybe we can define some terms and talk about the expectations when somebody walks in the in the door for the first time, and what's going to be done, and choosing goals and things. You, you talk about you, you treating um, injuries of the psyche, and the physiology of of the brain causes un, unhappiness and depression and all. Which what what is your your main point here, where you say all of these things are the root are the root of all all illnesses and and trauma, and it creates dysfunction. Can you can you explain that a little bit? Absolutely, yeah. I um I consider you know my myself and my practice to be a trauma informed practice, which means that for me, I think it's far more likely that someone has suffered an injury to the psyche, as in child abuse or neglect or um, you know, something in, in their younger years that has caused dysfunction and disorder in their lives. I think it's more likely that something has happened than someone actually organically has schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. I think that if we could eliminate child abuse, we would eliminate uh, depression and anxiety almost completely because when that brain is growing, every day is crucial. And messages that don't get spoken, that just sort of get, absorbed into their into their psyche into their soul basically those are so much more powerful than anything we say out loud so if a child grows up in a house where there's a lot of chaos or domestic violence where they don't have enough money uh, they don't have enough food that's going to, to alter their perception of the world it's going to change the way their brain develops it's going to change you know how they feel about themselves uh, do they feel safe it can attack their basic sense of safety which would, of course, you know, in later years cause all sorts of, of, you know, dysfunction and discomfort. So I try to really um, have people explore their past and um, really think about what's going on and what's happened to them because life moves really, really fast and we miss a lot. And so sometimes you just have to sit down and really pick it apart to understand why you feel the way you feel. 
So go in, in, in that particular approach, going back in, in your past, in your life, and that to be able to deal with the present and the future. I would imagine, and uh, folks, I've, I've been through years of therapy for different things um, in my life, so I'm, I'm familiar with what she's talking about. But I, um, I don't know that that, that is... It, it's always like uncomfortable for people to 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 be able to deal with that, right? I don't want to have to go back and reflect because it doesn't feel good, and well, maybe I did something wrong, and if if I had changed my ways, kind of thing, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. Yes. So, um, yeah, I think it's interesting what you say about the whole child abuse thing and how that that can be a blueprint for future disaster but can can we get into a little bit about um say you have you have a new family and and um coming in that that you've gotten a new referral and whether it's a a mom and a dad and a child or whatnot when they when they first come to you what 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 can we kind of paint a scenario of what you would do if if people out there are listening or contemplating and saying, gee, I really have this issue, but I didn't want to really address it, and I don't really know what I'm getting into, can you kind of walk us through that? Oh, definitely, yeah. I um, I deal with this, you know, often because a lot of people have never, you know, been to a therapist or a counselor before, and they're really nervous coming in. But really, it's like any other doctor's appointment. I mean, you come in and you have a little paperwork and I, you know, take the photocopy of your insurance card and we figure out what's your copay and, and whatnot. And, uh, you know, then I just sort of sit down with them and I say, okay, well, you know, what made you pick up the phone and make that call? You know, what, what got you here? And that usually just sort of opens the door to, you know, whatever it is that brought them to me. But is the thing that they talk about the real issue? Um, sometimes, <laughs> um, but they, you know, you know, it, to them, it's the real issue, you know, that, that's, you know, but to me, I'm always going, okay, well, what is underneath this presenting issue we have here? You know, your, your kid is not sleeping and is afraid to go to school. What's going on? You know, cause he's not lazy, right. you know, she's not trying to be difficult. There's a reason for this. And I, I think parents really want to know that reason and they might need, you know, someone from the outside to help them support, you know, their kid in speaking their truth or support them in asking the right questions and, and knowing, you know, how better to respond if they want to freak out, how to not do that if their kid says something upsetting and, and just how to make the conversation safe for everyone because everyone is going to behave in front of the therapist. I cannot speak for when you get in the car and you go home, but while you're here, Everyone's going to be respectful. Everyone's going to keep it together. This is a safe space. And I think that, you know, a place with no distractions, no TV, no radio, just no, no anything, but you're sitting here to deal with your stuff is a really powerful intervention in and of itself. Just giving people a safe place to talk. They'll take the, they'll take the wheel. You know, I don't have to do a whole lot because generally people who are ready to come and talk to somebody are really you know, looking for answers. They want to get it out and they want to, but you have, you create a trusting environment. What are, how do you deal with the fact that maybe people come in 
with preconceived ideas in terms of expectations. And I know, isn't it part of the therapist's job in the beginning, especially, okay, this is the kind of therapies that I do, and we can talk about that. And then set goals and set reasonable goals, right? Definitely, yeah. People, you know, they do need goals, and they need to see that they're they're doing it. You know, you, you it might be a small goal. It might be I got out of bed on time this morning. Great. You know, we we can get really basic and just set the smallest goals or the or bigger goals, definitely. But I do like to set my clients up for success. And part of what I teach them is to acknowledge themselves for all the the good things that they do throughout the day that they probably didn't even notice, didn't even think twice about. Um, take a moment and, you know, acknowledge yourself for, you know, helping your classmate or for, you know, wearing a really good outfit today or whatever, you know, just give yourself a little love. But, yeah, people do come in and, and they don't always know what to expect. And I often hear this is not, I didn't think it would be this way. This is great. I love this. Um, so people yeah. come in nervous. But, you know, once they get in, at least, you know, in in my experience they're they're at ease pretty quickly. I do have a dog, and that helps. You know, I try to I try to make things as warm and fuzzy as I can. Uh huh. I see. Mm-hmm. And and is the um with with regard to um the the different kinds of emotions that you you might see. Um, I'm thinking of of somebody who um, again getting away from the quote unquote normal family unit if we add on the extra layer of somebody who has had a, a family tragedy a suicide a homicide a missing persons a domestic I mean something like that if we add that on to the normal everyday pressures how how does that change the scenario and what kind of emotions uh, will will um, Come, come to pass. How, how do we deal with those extra layers beyond? That's a that's a hard thing. Um, it is it's a tough question. Yeah, because people are dealing with a lot just as it is. And when you have something so tragic, like a suicide or a homicide or a missing person, it it just shifts the entire dynamic of the family, where they tend to find themselves kind of in a crisis mode. And it takes a really long time for that crisis feeling to settle. And um, they can go years and years without feeling safe or with feeling guilt or shame or anger or disappointment or confusion. Maybe they blame themselves. Maybe they blame the other person. Um, Grief can often, you know, not be logical. There's not always a, you know, oh, I get why you feel that way to grief. You know, being angry at a deceased person doesn't make a lot of sense. But mm-hmm. it's totally normal. It's completely normal. And so, yeah, mixing anything, you know, as tragic as, as suicide or homicide into a, a, an average family really does uh, make a huge difference. And you always have to be mindful of it. And you can't just shove it under the rug and say, oh, we're not going to talk about that this week. No, you have to honor it every chance you get because to ignore it is just going to, give it an opportunity to cause even more discomfort and pain to the individual. Well, are, are there specific approach? I mean, in terms of, you know, dealing with trauma, I know there are certain approaches, but for people that have those type of things besides communication issues, besides anxiety and depression, are, are you a believer in, well, 
you need, there are certain therapists that specialize in this problem and this problem. And I don't specialize in this, but I'll refer you to so-and-so. Does that happen a lot? Um, it, it does happen. I wouldn't say a lot, but I definitely am willing to to recognize when it's not a good match or I, you know, I don't have the specific skill that I think they need. Um, I refer out for to send people for a therapy that's called EMDR, which is eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, um, which requires a therapist who's specifically trained in that modality. And it's a it's a bit unusual. It, it sort of requires a, a willingness on the client's part to sort of close their eyes and just let images come up as uh, a device helps you move your eyes back and forth. In my in my experience, my therapist is trained in EMDR, so I sit and I hold little plastic paddles in my hand, and they vibrate back and forth as I close my eyes and relive my trauma. You know, I had a car accident. We've been working on that so that I won't be as reactive when I'm driving. I won't get as upset if someone comes up on the right or, you know, does something I don't like. And um, that is a really, really powerful treatment for any sort of trauma. It's kind of the go-to for veterans who are returning from combat. Um, So I'm not, I'm trained in hypnosis, but I'm not trained in that. And I will definitely refer out to anyone who, I think just needs that level of care. I'm, I'm happy to do it. I'm happy to help people find um, any modality that works for them. Mm-hmm. So really, yeah, the therapist has to keep the ego in check and recognize when you need to call for backup. Okay. Yeah, definitely. No one, no one has all the answers, right? <laughs> right. Exactly. What do you find sometimes in your client base that occasionally there will be a person who's perhaps isolated from their family, perhaps lives in an area that um, they don't know anybody, don't they don't have friends, and it's difficult for them to be in contact with people and come to you once a week just to have someone to talk to? Yep, those those clients are definitely out there. And there's definitely room for them, and there's nothing wrong with that. If it helps someone to come in just to have a familiar face to talk to every week, and if that is what keeps that person going, there is nothing wrong with that, and I'm happy to provide that for them and and also sort of try to gently refer them to art classes or a group therapy or, you know, something where they will be around other people because a lot of the time they're isolated because they're afraid of going into the world and of being around people. So I I try to use the relationship that we have to give them some confidence and some energy to go out there and and try to connect with people. Well, I bring that up because like you spoke about before, the internet has, has isolated people from a lot of, person-to-person contact and I think we're losing Mm -hmm. that uh, person-to-person contact and so I guess what I'm trying to say is it's not necessarily a mental illness that you would be treating for this particular person but even if someone does have a mental illness it's the same level of care 
Am I correct in saying that as far as, you know, there there shouldn't be any stigma attached to that if you're going to a therapist just because you you enjoy that human contact and you enjoy the information that you may be getting from a therapist or if that therapist is actually treating you for something that is, you know, in, in the book um, or di- as a diagnosis that there shouldn't be a stigma attached to that, that you should feel free and you should feel okay to just reach out to someone else. Oh, my yeah. God, yes. Preach, Delilah, exactly. You do not, <laughs> you know, really. People have Delilah, you, you said the magic words. Absolutely. You did, all, yeah. All um, disabilities, or I mean, you don't have to have a label attached, and I mean, for insurance purposes, I guess we, those of us who have been therapists have always been creative in saying, okay, this could be social life, I, I, um, uh, being socially isolated, but then you're, you're working on, like, um, establishing intimacy and not, not in the sexual context of intimacy, but, you know, building relationships. Those are all bona fide problems that people have, but they don't equate to a mental illness. Is that true, Erin? Oh, definitely. Yeah. You, um, you're right. For for insurance purposes, typically, yes, the <laughs> provider has to, you know, give some diagnosis. So I, you know, will use something really mild, really, you know, just something, you know, to just because it's formal. But yeah, you know, you know, coming to a therapist and just talking and and maybe talking about your life or or just maybe being vulnerable with another human being and maybe just connecting and having eye contact and sharing moments. Um, that's that's tremendously important in this day and age. I just read this, you know, really sweet story about this lady in, you know, maybe South Carolina or somewhere. Her 90-year-old neighbor wrote her a note and put it in her mailbox, and it just said, you know, I'm just really lonely. You know, would you consider, you know, being friends? Um, And I think that that's, it's so sad, but at the same time, it's really uplifting because the people in the community did rally around this person. Um, But I think that happens a lot. You know, people who are not mentally ill just so happen to have no real family or no real system of friends and they need people, people, you know, people need people. Barbara Streisand had it right. Um, (laughs) Absolutely. I always preach as a single person without kids and, you know, family kind of doing their own thing. I know what that's like and I, I need my people. I really do. And I'm not ashamed to say that, not in a dependent sort of way, but, you know, sort of an interconnecting way, and I need people to acknowledge me once in a while. It's it's hard to live by yourself. I mean, really, mm-hmm. it is sometimes. You know, there's oh, no yeah. need to well, open you know, not, and, not only yeah. that point, but there, and and maybe Erin, maybe you can speak to this. There are a lot of mental illnesses and a lot of disabilities that are unseen, more or less. You know, the general public can't look at you and say, okay, you have this disease or you have this mental illness um, or, or disability. They, if, and, and that, I think, is where a lot of the misunderstanding comes from. If we can't see it, feel it, touch it, know it, then mm-hmm. it doesn't exist, and that's not always true. Exactly, right. Yeah, there's, there's a million illnesses that you can't see 
just by looking at a person. And there's a great blog called But You Don't Look Sick dot com and um yeah that it really it's true. People walk around and they look great. We we wear a mask that we put out into the world so that nobody can see our weaknesses because heaven forbid we be vulnerable or someone think we're weak. So therapy gives you a place to come just take the mask off and just speak plainly and freely, you know, mental illness or not, everyone needs to be able to take that mask off. Yeah, and I agree with that. Excuse me, I work with people who are legally blind, and a lot of times those um, different eye diseases, you can look at them and they, they look perfectly fine, but their their vision in and of itself is very poor and they can't they might not have any central vision. They may not they may only be able to see out of the corners of their eyes and they you know, it but to look at them you you wouldn't know. So there's many, many like this, like you say, Erin, and um I think that's a very good point, Delilah. And it, so it's it's I don't know, what what is it that we can do as a society help us be tolerant? Uh, and I think that's so that's such a big problem in society, no matter what the disability, what the problem, what the heartache is someone is going through. And I mean, everyone has their own biases, but how do we make people become more tolerant and more kind? Is it if it's not in your genetic makeup, you're not going to be a kind person? Oh no, I think anyone can learn, you know, learn kindness, learn empathy, learn compassion. Um, I think that as a society, it would be great if we could just slow down a little bit and not be in a hurry so much. I don't know if it's just because I'm from, you know, Connecticut and New England where we are go, go, go all the time yeah, and we're we are. just sort of frantic constantly. Um, but yeah, I, I wish people would just sort of slow down and maybe talk to their neighbors and talk to people who don't look like them and, um, you know, put themselves in a position to be exposed to people that they wouldn't normally be exposed to and be exposed to, to ways of life and cultures and, and, and such that they wouldn't, you know, find just in their own neighborhood. I just, I wish people could maybe take some time out of their lives really to go volunteer somewhere or to, or to go, you know, put themselves, you know, in a place that they haven't been before where maybe they're, maybe they're not the, uh, the only Maybe they are the only, like, white face in a room full of, of people of color, you know, because we, we have to experience things in order to build empathy. I wish people would read more as well, because if you can't physically mm-hmm. go out and do it, reading about it can build so much empathy. It's, reading is such a powerful thing, and um, I worry point. that people don't do it as much anymore. <laughs> right, right. I'm guilty of that, but I'm reading a good book now. <laughs> Yay, good. But, yeah, yeah, That. That that is good, and like you say, there are very, some very good, uh, helpful blacks out there as well. Like you say, um, one thing, a couple other um, things I wanted to get into too. We have about twenty one, twenty two minutes just to give you a little time check there, Erin. Sure. Um, uh, tell us about about the Rhonda Britton group and, and what this uh, fearless living is. Um, I don't know anything about it. What is it? And how do you incorporate that into your treatment? And who who is yeah, she? Uh, yeah. yeah, I um, you know what, Rhonda Britton. Meeting her was a huge turning point in my life as a as a person and as a therapist. Um, 
I suffered from horrifying anxiety and panic attacks, bordering on like agoraphobia. Like I could, I could go to, to work. I could go to like my parents' house or to the grocery store, but for years and years, my life just got smaller and smaller because of the intensity of the panic attacks and the anxiety. Um, and I got to a point where, you know, I just, I had to do something big. And so I signed up for Rhonda Britton's seminar that she was teaching at Kripalu, which is a yoga and wellness center um, in Massachusetts. It's, it's tremendous. I had no idea what I was signing up for, but I got in that class that day and this, this little blonde woman who was just adorable and like a perky cheerleader um, sat us all down and, and asked people, do you know who I am? And a lot of the people did, but I did not. And um, then she told us this story about her childhood and growing up with parents um, that, you know, had domestic violence. Um, her father was, was very physical with them, with her in particular. And, and the parents did divorce. And then um, a few years later, the father came and things were fine, and the family thought, oh, we're going out for brunch. It's Father's Day. This is nice. But unfortunately, um, Dad brought a shotgun, and he murdered her mother and killed himself in front of her. Wow. And, uh, yeah, my jaw was on the floor. I had no idea what I had signed up for. Um, and she went on to explain that, really, for the next 20-some-odd years of her life, she put the mask on, and she was a cheerleader, and she was – tops in her high school and she went to college and got great grades but um on the inside she was dying and you know she suffered from alcoholism and suicide attempts and um realized and I think it was her third uh hospitalization for suicide that this was going to kill her and she had to figure out what it was and eventually she realized that it was the fear that was killing her the fear that she didn't deserve to live because she didn't save her mother. Um, and for me, that was just like eye opening beyond imagining that someone could really believe that strongly that you didn't save your mom because you're not some sort of ninja or you're not some sort of commando who can save mm-hmm. the day. You know, you're a 14 year old girl. She was a 14 year old kid. And, um, that just that alone was just unbelievable to me to think that, holy crap, there's a voice in the back of my head saying terrible things to me, just like there's a voice in the back of her head saying terrible things to her, and none of them are true. Mm-hmm. You know, and it, just, it absolutely, her, she has figured out fear from the ground up. How does it work physiologically? How does it work mentally, emotionally, intelligently? Um, and she really, I haven't had a panic attack since I met her in 2012. I don't intend to have any more. Um, wow. And I, so is yeah. it a program with steps that you, that you walk through yourself or is it different? Does she go and do presentations for groups or how does it work? She does uh, go and do presentations for work and um, she travels all over the country and um, she has several books, that, and they're on the New York Times bestseller list. And the, the primary book is Fearless Living. And it is kind of a step-by-step program that anyone can do. You can do it by yourself if you want. It's but a self-help. I do think, yeah, absolutely. It's definitely self-help. There's exercises to follow. There are all kinds of anecdotes and stories that people can really connect with because it's real life stuff um, and just kind of realize that 
you're not alone. Everyone has fear. We're born with it. It it exists to keep us safe. If we didn't have this in our system, we never would have made it past the caveman days. Let's face it. Fight or flight exists for a reason. Um, Mm -hmm. And you you can work with it. You can talk to it. You can be mindful of everything. You can be mindful of what am I doing when I'm eating this entire bag of potato chips? Do I really like chips or am I trying to stuff my feelings down? And it just kind of gives you the opportunity to take a step back and look and realize where fear might be telling you, no, 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 don't take that risk. Stay on the couch. Don't go outside. Don't talk to anyone because it just, it just doesn't want you to get hurt, but it can ruin your life if you just always stay on the couch. So um, yeah, Rhonda Britton just um, really made it clear to me and um she did a show in the early 90s called Starting Over, and I think you can find those episodes online somewhere. And it was kind of on the YouTube, first reality right? show. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you can probably find it on YouTube. Yeah, she, um, you know, she kind of started the reality TV movement, and now she just uh-huh. she speaks and, and helps thousands of people. She's really inspirational. She's very um, approachable. She has a very easy-to-understand way of putting things. Well, that that sounds good. So, uh, people with a number of different types of issues and problems can, can can utilize her her techniques and and her story. Oh, definitely, because a lot of it is really common sense. It's just things mm-hmm. that we don't think about. You know, things like expectations, which we, you know, talked about even at the beginning of this call. Is you know, if you can be aware of expectations, that can just give you so much relief that one little tiny thing so she really has a very common sense approach to things she's not you know hoity-toity going to use all sorts of words and phrases and lingo that you've never heard before this is all you know stuff that we we all deal with right well it certainly sounds something worth looking into and uh you know maybe even looking into her for future presenters uh, or something um yeah with yeah, with regard to um, being a therapist long term, um, you know, I, I don't think I've ever put my former uh, licensed professional counselor guest laying on the spot and said, have you had therapy? So um, let's talk a little bit about secondary traumatization. And <clears throat> since you've been so kind to share some of your um your your personal issues and I, I think it kind of makes sense. We a lot of us do. I, I do this work because I'm a homicide survivor, not because I chose it. It was it, mm-hmm. it called to me to do as a mission. So it sounds like it. This has become a mission for you, Erin. But in order for you to maintain your healthiness, and you're you're there, and I don't know how many hours you work per day, or or like you say in the evenings or on weekends. You know, there's the cumulative effect, perhaps, and, oh, you know, um, I'm hearing all this tragedy, and I need to break out of this. What do you do um, to keep yourself personally healthy, and, and what what is it that you need to do? And it's okay to give yourself permission to go to have your own therapist? Oh, my gosh, yeah. I, I think every therapist should have a therapist. I, I um just having the support and someone to talk to because, you yeah, know, we hear, we hear terrible things, you know, we, we hear the worst of humanity and um, it does affect me. Absolutely. It affects all of all therapists because 
we're only human and we're going to absorb some of what we're hearing. We're going to take in some of that energy. And so, yeah, there are definitely days I go home and I am a total jerk to my boyfriend or whatever, because I'm, I'm mentally and emotionally exhausted. I have nothing left to give. Um, so when I get to that point, I know it's time to go see my therapist or to, you know, go have a, a massage, have a day off, take time off. I do try to take as much time away as I can. Um, I try to work like every other Friday and, and give myself a lot of rest and a lot of space um, between the office and me. I worked from home for a year and, you know, it's great for convenience, but it was terrible for boundaries. You know, it's like all I did was walk downstairs. Of course, I'm still upset, um, you know, and you can't show the clients that you're upset. So um, self-care is, is key. Good, good books, good friends, good supervision, therapy, finding your outlets, um, being creative. I'm a, I'm a writer. That helps me tremendously. Um, yeah. And I, yeah, I'm constantly, you know, telling clients and everyone, you know, journal, go watch kitten videos, do what you have to do to just feel a little bit better and, and just kind of take care of yourself. 10 minutes worth of, you know, watching cat videos can really kind of boost your whole mood, strangely enough. So <laughs> I try to do those silly little things. Well, what do we, what do we do when, uh, for instance, I'm bringing you back into the, the crime victim realm where after you've had, you know, an act of violence and you're, you're dealing with a criminal justice system and, okay, well, the, the judicial branch will, will approve six sessions of therapy when, you know, and we'll pay for that, but then after that, sorry, you're on your own. What do you do in that kind of situation when maybe you can help pay for something a little while, but six sessions, six sessions doesn't cure anyone. And I don't know if there is really a cure. It's just a different, right. a different way of approaching life. Let's talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I do. Um, I, ha- I have run into that on occasion. I, and I, I'm working with, you know, the victim's advocate office um, pretty often. And yeah, they'll they'll say, oh, you can have you know six sessions, or you can have ten sessions, or or whatever, and they'll pay for it, which is great. Um, but wow. I, I am also you know kind of willing to to call them up and to say, listen, I need more sessions. Listen, I need this, I need that. And I will say, you know, most of the time they'll 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 work with me as long as I'm communicating with them and saying, hey, listen, the client is coming every week. They're very dedicated. They're getting a lot of support and help from this. Um, I, I, you know, I don't know if I've just been lucky, but the state has been, you know, really accommodating and, um, and when they're, yeah, yeah, it's, it's shocking, but true. But I do live in Connecticut, which is a really good state for things like that. Um, but then after the sessions are used up, yeah, I, I will say, okay, well, we can use your private insurance or we can make a sliding scale, you know, just pay me what you can afford basically, because I'm never going to kick out somebody who's just been assaulted or just lost someone to suicide, you know, that to me would be really unethical. So I I will work with the person to find a way if they want to keep coming to keep coming. Mm -hmm. Should people be very concerned with regard to what's happening now in the forefront with the the changeover from Obamacare to Trump care, if we want to call it that with all of those 
quote unquote pre existing conditions and you're gonna oh, be God. left out in the cold. What 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 would you have to say in general about that? Well in general it's my hope that this ridiculous bill dies, you know, in the Senate. Um it's really scary times and we can't pretend like it isn't. And I, you know, I, I do encourage people like get involved, call your representatives, write letters, donate to causes that support, you know, covering what you need covered. Um, it is, it's a really scary time. And, you know, even for somebody like me, who's been around a long time, well, if insurance stops covering mental health, then what do we do? You know, then I would switch over to a sliding scale. I would have to, you know, work with people on what can you afford um, and I think most mental health professionals would find a way to still see clients because we're, like you say, we're called to this. We are mm-hmm. just, we're driven to this. And, um, I think that mental health is going to survive no matter what, but, um, yeah, the, the bills that are up right now are, are positively hideous and terrifying. And I have a lot of people actually who are rushing in now, let me get to the therapy now before they take away my, my benefits. Um, so it does kind of cause a state of panic among people that they're like, oh, my God, I got, well, I got to do this now because I'm going to lose my benefits. And, you know, that. Wow. Yeah. That's, yeah. It's, that's, it's sad. That's awful. Mm-hmm. Mm. What, um, are there some overriding fallacies that people have just in general about what, you know, what people do in, in therapy or some myth? misunderstandings are for for people who are listening here and you know just from my online friends people are fraught with issues and problems and you know not necessarily their own making it's just life and and to try to direct them towards someone and to make it to make them say no that's not true you know this this is true and we can we can help you and you don't have to be a millionaire what what um, overriding message would you like to say to people in general and then maybe to people that are, are, are newly, um, have, have come kind of into the forefront because they've had some kind of acute problem? Um, well, I guess I think people can, uh, can do have some uh, preconceived notions of therapy. There's kind of a stigma and whatnot still as much as we try to fight it. Um, I have had people like come in and, and think that they really are going to have to lie down on a couch and just, you know, talk for an hour and all I'm going to do is nod and, and write notes. And then when it doesn't go that way, they're very confused, but they're really happy too because they didn't really want to have that, you know, that movie, you know, stereotypical therapist. They, you know, no one's really into that. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I, I try to normalize the experience as much as possible and say, no, you, you don't have to lay down. You know, I'm (laughs) going to ask you questions. You know, we're going to talk about stuff. I'm not even going to write anything down in front of you. I don't do that. Um, Yeah, you know, people definitely have an idea, thanks to Hollywood, of what it's going to look like. That's how it goes. Do you, what are the, uh, are you a proponent of a combination of individual therapy and group therapy or after you finish individual therapy, I'm going to refer you to a group sometimes? Yeah, I think group therapy is fantastic. If I had the Me space too. to do it in my <laughs> office, I, I would do it. Um, I, I think it's really important to do both if you can because individual therapy is fantastic and it's all about you and we just think about you all the time. But group therapy, you're going to get 
different points of view. You're going to get different sorts of feedback. You're going to hear different things. And I think that's really powerful. And I think that people talking to their peers and connecting with their peers is the most powerful thing they can do. I mean, especially, you know, for teenagers and things like that, they really need a place where they can talk freely with, with people their own age and uh, maybe be guided by a group leader, but a place where they can just be really free to get really honest feedback and emotion and, you know, just experience in, in talking with people directly. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, to make the distinction between a peer group versus a professional therapy group, because there are differences, right, in terms of oh, it, is it just a facilitator? I, I, I bring this up because I've been, a, I've been involved in so many groups and a facilitator. I've run stroke uh, CVA support groups for people who've had strokes in my former profession, I've, I've been a leader in PFLAG groups. I initiated, you know, the homi- uh, survivors of homicide in Connecticut, their peer groups. So I'm a big proponent of groups, but they're they're different. And so people, I think people listen more if it's just peer-to-peer versus a therapy group. Mm-hmm. I don't know. <laughs> what do you think? Yeah, I think they do. They, they, um, they're going to, to go with whatever they connect to the most. And I think peers is, you know, someone who's gone through what you've gone through is precious and valuable and can be life-changing. That's why I, you know, I totally support the PFLAG groups. I support, you know, Al-Anon, Narcanon, um, you know, that, you know, survivor groups for homicide, for breast cancer, for suicide, they're, they're out there. And the power of knowing that these people have been there and they get it and they're not going to look at you like you're a freak because they've done the same thing. They've been through the same trauma, whatever it may be, is so powerful and so empowering um, that, yeah, I, I absolutely love to refer people to groups, and I can't say enough good things about them. Yeah, well, and I, the fact that people understand that they're not going through this alone. Um, I think right. a lot of times people have the, the notion that you know, no one else in the world could feel like this. It's not possible, but it is. Mm-hmm. And, and there are a lot of people out there who feel a whole lot worse than you do. So I think, right. again, I, I've seen that in action as well, that um, being able to relate to a group of people who are experiencing the same thing as you are takes that isolation away that feeling of isolation and that you're not mm-hmm. the only one. That's Absolutely. the most powerful thing, no matter what you're talking about, Delilah. I think that ingredient of you're not the only one and to even just meet one other family, one other person, and then it kind of opens the door. And I've seen it over and over and over where, where that person who was the new kid on the block walked through that door, which is the hardest thing you can do sometimes with this whole mm-hmm. group of people you don't know and then they rise through the ranks and they become the group leader. Mm-hmm. How good is that? Yeah. Right? It's wonderful, yeah. You know, I, I sometimes, I wish we, we had that kind of a thing for missing persons, although I don't really know if that exists in my state. I'll have to check that out, or maybe that's something we can start. But sure. anyway, 
yes, yes, the, 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 the sky's the limit when it comes to this. And I think it's so good to be able to network and to know people like you, Erin, because you sound like you're very creative in terms of your approaches and you're very approachable. And we, we so appreciate you taking this opportunity. Um, if people would like to get in touch with you, because you sound very non-threatening if people around me are on the <laughs> right. verge of, on the verge of, oh, I really need a therapist, but I don't want them to yell at me when I walk through the door. Would you be amenable to having referrals or to at least be the air traffic controller to direct people um, if that were the case? Oh, definitely, yeah. They can, um, if you Google me, my Psychology Today page. (laughs) If you Google me, my Psychology Today page will pop up. I have a page on Psychology Today, Today. yep, which is, you know, super, super straightforward. Yeah, I think it's probably the easiest way. Um, But also email is always fine. Um, My email is aaronsmith.lmft at gmail. So it's it's Aaron Smith, not Aaron Doolittle. That's what's confusing. Um, And it's lmft, which is Licensed Marriage Family Therapist, at gmail. And I'm always, you know, happy to to take in emails and, uh, you know, just talk to people about, Am I right for you? Do I know anybody who could be right for you? You know, I'm happy to do that. Okay, well, well, that's great. Uh, I think I think you've done a great job providing an overview, and maybe people take taking the scariness out of uh, um, marriage and family therapy. And I think I think we've done a a good service here. Do you have any other parting thoughts, for Wiley, before we close out the hour? Oh, not really. I just want to thank Erin for for giving up her hour on Saturday to be with us and, and, you know, offer the information that you have, which I think is valuable to millions of people out there. Um, So thank you so much for for coming on today. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, if if there's a particular topic that we can – Enlighten people on that involves you, Erin. We're, we're always amenable to doing another show in the future. And uh, please, please be sure that this show is always available on the archives about a half hour after we close out. So feel free to circulate it far and wide. And uh, thank you again. And, Erin, uh, I will be talking to you about other matters very soon off the air, okay? Thank awesome. You so Perfect. Much. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Have a great weekend, Erin, and everybody. Thank you, Delilah.